Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, September 1st, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. STAT reporter Megan Multeni joins us to discuss the science, hype, and Silicon Valley funds at the heart of the longevity field. And we turn the microphone on Damian to discuss his new profile of Stelios Papadopoulos. Before we get started, uh, we wanted to let you know that Pat Skerritt's uh, First Opinion podcast is coming off summer break. Uh, the first new episode will drop on September 7th, so definitely tune into that. And uh, now a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley of STAT. Thanks for listening. It's an exciting time for biopharma. We're seeing real potential in new treatments, but they require big innovation. Linda Matiasson from Cytiva's nucleic acid therapeutics team is here to tell us more. Thanks, Angus. mRNA vaccines, cell-free, CAR-T, and more are changing or poised to change lives. At Cytiva, we are innovating production of small batch personalized medicines. They are creating new hope for treating cancers and other diseases. Visit Cytiva.com slash advanced therapeutics to learn how we are working with customers to bring their ideas to reality. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com forward slash advanced dash therapeutics. In the early 1990s, a biologist by the name of Cynthia Kenyon discovered that an alteration in a single gene of a tiny transparent worm could double the creature's lifespan. Up until that point, most scientists believed that aging was a process that couldn't be slowed or stopped. We, meaning humans and other organisms, simply wore out over time. That's dark, Adam. <laughs> but Kenyon's findings upended conventional thinking. I mean, with her worm experiment, uh, she showed that aging, age-related diseases and illnesses and even death were processes directed by genetic programs. And if that was true, then the process of aging and everything that goes with it might one day be at least partially controlled by drugs or therapies. So Kenyon's discovery in the early 1990s birthed the field of what's called longevity research. 30 years later, scientists are leveraging technological innovations in genomics, proteomics, and machine learning to unlock the secrets of aging. The field, which was once considered on the fringes of science, has entered a new phase in which drugs are now being developed and tested to determine if age-related illnesses can be slowed or even prevented. To learn more about longevity research and its potential, we are joined by our STAT colleague and science writer, Megan Molteni. Megan has written a new report that takes a deep dive into longevity research. It's titled The Race for Longevity, How Scientists and Industry Are Seeking to Extend Healthy Lives. Megan, welcome back to The Read Out Loud. Thanks for having me. So, Megan, when people hear about anti-aging or longevity research, they often associate it with crackpot ideas and people trying to live to be 200 years old. But in your report, you explain that the field is actually more focused on ways to increase a person's health span. Can you explain what that is and why it's important? Yeah, absolutely. So health span is probably increasing health span is a more modest goal than, you know, immortality, but that's really where the field is focused. And it's essentially the number of healthy years a person has. So, you know, 
back, if you were born back at the you know start of the 20th century in um, one of today's developed nations, you could expect to live to be about 50 years old. Um, and today, average life expectancy in those same countries has increased to 73 years. So you know, like a big jump, but that didn't translate to having all of those added years be good ones. And when researchers looked at data from the Global Burden of Disease Study, they found that the proportion of healthy years has held fairly constant over the fast last few decades as those gains were being made. So people are living longer, but more of those years are being spent in poor health at great astronomical cost to healthcare systems. So increasing health span is about maximizing healthy years while minimizing the time spent frail, sick, in cognitive decline. Um, this is also called kind of compression of morbidity. And, and, and I think even a modest extension of health span um, has been, you know, posited to have a, a huge economic benefit. There have been a number of analyses, you know, one recent one estimated that delaying the onset of these chronic diseases in every American by just one year could be worth about $38 trillion to the U.S. economy. So it's clear, you know, what, what given diseases are that are diagnosable that kind of factor into this. But zooming out, what is aging? Then, like, I know that sounds like a philosophical question, but as you explained in your report, there's a lot of science that's happened in recent decades aimed at understanding the precise biology of aging. So maybe without giving away too much of your report, what has happened? What what are the, the hallmarks of what we think of as getting older in a biological sense? Yeah, I mean, for a long time, it was a philosophical question. But, I, you know, what a lot of um, the kind of technical innovations of the last couple of decades have illuminated are these what are called nine hallmarks of aging. And, and you can think of that they're a conceptual framework for really classifying the various mechanisms that seem to be driving aging as a process. And essentially, each one of these nine Hallmarks describes relationships between the accumulation of damage that your body's taking on all the time from the environment and, uh, you know, UV rays coming out of the sun and the compensatory mechanisms that your body has to mitigate against that damage. And so you see kind of specific ways that these compensatory mechanisms break down as we get older. And that's kind of what make up these hallmarks of aging. So one of them, you know, is accumulation of lots of mutations to your DNA. Another is proteins misfolding and not being cleaned up because the, the mechanisms for tagging them and recycling them, you know, aren't working as well. And so, you know, the idea of these hallmarks of aging has been around since about 2010. And I would say that where the field has moved since then is getting past just describing these mechanisms and various pathways and understanding how they all fit together. So there was, you know, sort of a reductionist lens that was really driving the last 20 to 30 years of um, aging biology. And now I think we're seeing more of a systems biology approach um, emerging to kind of contextualize how all of these pathways overlap and intersect. So, Megan, tell us about metformin, uh, the diabetes drug. You know, it's featured in your report uh, as an example of how currently approved drugs are being repurposed for longevity research. But metformin is also a case study for the challenges that the field faces when trying to conduct clinical trials, pay for those trials, and also for potentially getting drugs approved. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you talk to people in this sector, over and over you'll hear that, you know, one of the biggest hurdles is just the fact that aging 
you know, to go back to the kind of philosophical philosophical question, is not currently classified as a disease. Um, the FDA doesn't consider it a disease. The WHO doesn't consider it a disease. And so, in order for someone to, you know, submit an IND for a drug, they it needs to be an indication. And since aging isn't one, you know, that has been sort of seen a, as a barrier. And Met, the story of metformin and the TAME trial is kind of one group of researchers, kind of their approach to getting around this and kind of class reclassifying, you know, aging as an indication that, that the FDA would recognize. And so metformin is a diabetes drug. It's been around for decades. Millions of people have taken it and it kind of emerged as a potential longevity um, you know, target because if you looked at epidemiological data of all of these um, diabetes patients who were taking metformin over the years, when you looked at people who were taking metformin versus people who were taking other drugs, over and over, researchers saw that they had much lower incidence of cancer, of heart attacks, of Alzheimer's, and kind of all these age-related illnesses compared to their their um, these other groups. And so the idea, and it's also it's got a very you know, robust safety profile. Um, and so the idea was, you know, can we kind of take some of these um, indications that the FDA recognizes? So Alzheimer's, heart disease, cancer, and kind of lump them together into a multi-morbidity clinical trial with a couple thousand patients um, and, and see if taking metformin could actually delay the onset of those diseases. And so this, this effort was being spearheaded by some a scientist named Nir Barzilai. Um, he heads the um, association, American Association for Aging Research. And he and a whole group of scientists got a bunch of money from the NIH to come up with this clinical trial design. They took it to the FDA. The FDA gave it a green light. And so, you know, kind of it was believe that in a couple of years, we would have some answers to that. And that was back in 2015. And what he found was that, you know, because metformin is a generic and it costs about six cents a pill, there wasn't, you know, any sort of incentive for anyone to fund this trial, which is going to cost anywhere between 50 and $75 million. And so they're still in the fundraising phase. This uh, you know, trial still hasn't begun. There have been a number of times he thought they were close and then the money fell through. And so, you know, when you talk to biotech um, leaders in this space, they're all kind of hoping it does go forward because it will both kind of, you know, blaze a path and set a standard and really establish, you know, potential proxy biomarkers for how you might, you know, as you bring the ther different therapeutics that are, you know, targeted at specific indications like the, of age-related diseases, you're kind of could accrue data at the same time to at some point in the future go after, you know, aging as its own thing. So they're all kind of, you know, kind of waiting around and, and <laughs> hoping that someday, someday it will happen. It's interesting because while that TAME trial is still struggling to kind of get off the ground, there are people, I mean, several tech millionaires and billionaires included, who are funding longevity research. And there are dozens of companies out there right now working on, you know, actual treatments. Your report digs into a number of these. Can you give us a couple of examples? Sure. So I think it's important to say, you know, there are no approved drugs for, you know, anything that's targeting aging specifically as an underlying process. You know, companies are still working on this. One of the ones that's 
the most advanced and has been around the longest is Unity Biotechnology. They are developing a class of drugs called senolytics. So these are drugs that are targeted at something called senescent cells, which are these, uh, it's a hallmark of aging. These cells sometimes go into this arrested state. Um, they kind of, they're like zombies. They're not really doing their jobs, but they're not dying either. And they're spewing out toxins and causing all sorts of chaos. And so Unity was developing a drug um, that was aimed at severe osteoarthritis. And it was a closely watched trial, uh, phase two. And when they announced in the results in 2020, they were just really disappointing. And it kind of threw a pall over the whole emerging senolytic field. Since then, Unity has you know, pivoted away from that specific indication. Their now uh, most advanced program is called UBX1325, and it targets senescent cells in the vascu- vasculature of the eye. And so they're um, looking at you know, targeting these age-related diseases of, of the eye. Um, they, have, they had a readout just last week showing that in a kind of initial... Um, read out from phase two that they saw prolonged um, vision improvements and we're expecting to get a full readout later in the year. And I think people are still kind of waiting to see those longer results to kind of decide whether, um, you know, Synalytics has, has kind of made it, um, you know, on, on the big stage. And then I think another company that's really interesting is this company called BioAge. Um, they're out in California and they're kind of backed by a lot of Silicon Valley venture capital led by a former bioinformatician at Stanford, this woman named Kristen Fortney. And they're taking a much more big data approach. So they have these, they went out and got data from these long lived stud, studies of long lived people in Estonia and the UK and other places. And they basically just mine the crap out of their, you know, genomics, proteomics, everything in their blood to figure out, you know, what were some signals for what was making people live longer and could they kind of reverse, you know, engineer targets to go after. Um, and so then they started licensing some, some drugs to further develop that. And, you know, one of the ones that, um, is, that they're moving forward with is this one called BGE-175. And in mice, they saw that that actually protected um, aged animals from SARS-CoV-2. It's kind of like an immune-boosting drug. And so they're actually conducting a phase two trial of that in elderly COVID-19 patients right now. Um, And so they kind of have a focus on how can they help the the aging immune system um, kind of be revived, be regenerated, and be able to respond to pathogens better. So those those were you know two of the of the companies that I've, I'm very fascinated by and, and looking forward to seeing what's next for them. I wanted to ask you about a third company which seems to have gotten the lion's share of attention at least recently. A company called Altos Labs, and I think the interest is mostly related to the scientific luminaries tied to it, but maybe more so the incredible sums of money that it is raising. Can you tell us what Altos is trying to do? Yeah. So that Altos is advancing the science of partial reprogramming. So speaking of scientific luminaries, this is um, work that was done by a team led by Juan Carlos Ispizuo Belmonte, who was formerly at the Salk Institute. Now he's leading one of the Altos Labs um, institutes. And the idea is that you're, you're resetting 
an aging cells epigenetic code. So these are these are the kind of the sets of chemical tags that um, get that DNA acquires as you as a cell develops and gets older, and it toggles genes on and off. And so if you think back to the you know another big scientific advance in um, induced pluripotent stem cells is the work of Shinya Yamanaka. What that does is essentially rewinds a cell's epigenetic program back to essentially like a point where they could become any other kind of cell. That's what, you know, these, these induced pluripotent stem cells are. And partial reprogramming is not going back all the way to that state, but going back enough that the cells actually seem younger. And when they did this in mice, they saw that mice were able to, you know, their kidneys worked better, their hearts pumped harder, and then they outlived their litter mates by about 30%. So Altos Labs doesn't call themselves an aging company, an anti-aging company or a longevity company. They, you know, they're, they call themselves kind of a regenerative medicine company. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of obvious how, how those two worlds kind of dovetail here. So Megan's report on longevity research is a fascinating read. It's available for sale and download at reports.statnews.com. Megan, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. It was fun. In the history of the global pharmaceutical industry, there have been many big thinkers, brash visionaries, and billionaire disruptors. But there has only ever been one godfather. His name is Stelios Papadopoulos. Damien dove into Papadopoulos's influence and legacy in the biotech industry and wrote up what is sure to be one of the great biotech profiles of our age. It also has one of my favorite rejections <laughs> to a request for comment <laughs> in which Papadopoulos told Damien, quote, I have flaws, but vanity is not one of them. Yeah, Damien, I have to say, I think in, on Twitter, I, I, I call this a masterfully written profile of Stelios. And I, and I truly believe that, um, you know, not only did you capture the essence of the man, uh, but you also like I, I was what I loved about it was just the context. And, you know, this is a guy who is just steeped in the biotech industry, you know, for 40 years. And um, just that kind of history uh, that you brought to life in the story, I thought it just you did a great job. So congrats on the profile. Thank you. That is, that's very nice of you to say. It has its beginnings. I think like a lot of the things that I end up doing in my trying to get out of doing work, um, which is to say, <laughs> you know, Stelios is the chairman of Biogen. And that is, uh, you know, the, the most recent permutation of his very long and storied career, which we can talk about. But the means by which I got assigned this story was I was talking to Rick Burke, our editor and, and executive producer of this podcast, who was fishing for what's the next Biogen story? You know, what 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 can we expect next? How can you possibly like, you know, squeeze more blood from the stone of covering this one company? And in trying to get out of it, did I say, well, they're in this transition period; they need to find a new CEO, a new head scientist. And in my deflection, did Rick very cleverly seize upon, okay, well, who's the protagonist of that? Who's the driving force among the people who are tasked with writing the ship of the company? And then, of course, I had to say, well, the chairman is Stelios Papadopoulos. And then he had followed questions about that. And by the end of that conversation, I had been assigned to write, uh, I think, what he determined to be the definitive profile of this very uh, singular character, really, in this industry. Well, that's a... Um... <laughs> 
big task from Rick, the yeah. definitive profile. Um, but like, as you alluded to, like Stelios has had a lot of roles in the biotech industry. I mean, he's the, the chairman of the board at Biogen. Um, he's been on boards of several other biotechs. He's been a founder. He's been an, an informal advisor. He's been a Wall Street analyst. Like, where did this um, moniker that you used like throughout the story of him as the godfather, where did that come from? You know, that was difficult to pin people down on. It's it's something that has become synonymous with him such that it appears on the Chirons when he goes on CNBC to talk about biotech stocks. So he's long since been cemented, whether it's tongue-in-cheek, whether it's reverent, whatever, as the godfather of biotech. The best I could trace it back to was the 1980s, which would be the early days of his career as an investment banker after he had been a sell-side analyst. And talking to people who knew him back then, both on the company executive side, on the venture capital side, talked about how he became the banker of choice for that generation, which was really still the first generation of biotech companies. And in part, that's because he himself was was a PhD scientist before going to Wall Street. And I think for a lot of that generation of companies, the the founders and CEOs were the scientific founders. So these were sort of the PhD scientists behind companies like Genentech and Amgen. And they came to look at, I mean, a few people told me this just directly, they kind of looked down their noses at Wall Street as just being the kind of like brutish money changers who you had to do business with in order to fund your science. But Stelio stood out in that he could and was very happy to talk about the basic science with them, the same stuff that had fascinated them to go down this journey of starting a company in the first place. And so as a result, he became initially just like a guy you could have a good conversation with who maybe wasn't like a titan of the financial institution. But as he built more of a Rolodex of these biotech founders, Naturally, when you wanted to raise money or go public or do any kind of transaction, you would think, well, why don't I call the banker I actually like in the form of Stelios? And so from there, did I guess he become famous for these lavish closing dinners he would have? If you did a deal through him, whether, like I said, it was a stock sale or an IPO or whatever, he would assemble all of the relevant parties at a nice restaurant in Manhattan and have an opulent, often Mediterranean meal. And, and Brooke Byers, the co-founder of uh, Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Byers, told me that that was his earliest recollection, is that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, they would raise a glass and say, here's to the Godfather at one of these dinners. You know, I think about the Godfather uh, term, Damien, like more kind of in, in the familial sense, you know, someone who is kind of like family, you know, someone who uh, is an advisor, someone you can trust, someone you can go to for advice. And and I th- and that comes through in the story. You know, you quote people, you talk to like, you know, John Maragonori, um, you know, Celia Economides, and, and they all call him an advisor, someone that they have spoken to, have gotten advice from over the years. And I think that's kind of the thing that really stuck out to me. One of the many things that stuck out to me in the story. Yeah, it was interesting putting the word godfather to people because there are those who scoff at the sort of Cosa Nostra implications of it and point to kind of what, what you said, the the familial aspect, but even almost like the Greek Orthodox aspect of the Godfather being the person who, you know, under kind of church doctrine, you would appoint to care for your child if you were unable to. And I don't know if maybe these people would take it that far, although perhaps, but it applied to a biotech sense where the child in this case is the beautiful science or the startup idea or, you know, whatever it is people do all day. In that case, Stelios did occupy sort of a godfatherly role to them in that, yeah, he, he became this kind of informal advisor. And by virtue of knowing so many people and being trusted by so many people, was he able to, I think fairly uniquely, have the ability to convene 
groups of people in biotech who might not otherwise be drawn into the same place. I think so. That's a lot of the position that he occupies in the in, in the industry is not so much you know pulling the strings in a sort of mafioso kind of way, but rather just as an almost like connective tissue unto himself. <laughs> this. This profile kind of lays out, he seems to kind of have one foot in each one of those definitions of, of of Godfather. I mean, the anecdote where he is helping to dispose of this lamb that they were going to cook up for this big, you know, celebratory event. And unfortunately, the lamb goes bad and they're they're joking about literally disposing of bodies. And then you also have like the anecdotes of him deciding to pursue a career in the sciences after seeing this video of a physicist playing the bongos and just thinking that guy is the coolest guy in the world. Like, how did you get those types of details when Stelios declined to talk to you? Yeah, I was fortunate in that one, you know, for for some of the stuff from his past, like the Richard Feynman anecdote, that was something that he said in an interview, I believe, to Nature. So I, I had the benefit of reading every interview he'd ever done, at least as far as I could find. Um, but then I had the benefit of the fact that despite his reticence to be interviewed for the story, he has many, many, many friends and colleagues, and virtually all of them were delighted uh, to talk about him at my invitation, often at length. Stan Crook spent like 90 minutes over a Zoom with me, which was very, very nice. Um, so that was my benefit was that this is a guy who's forged a lot of relationships and um, you know, and more than one person actually said to me some version of, I'm glad this is happening now because so often we don't speak about people this way until we're at their funerals, which I realize is kind of a macabre turn to take this. But but I think there was something to that. I think the the sort of like pent up desire to talk about these guy among so many of these people was was based on that. Uh, as, as they saw the email from me and as they got in conversation with me, they started going down memory lane. And so a lot of the interviews that I had scheduled for maybe half an hour bled out into 45 minutes or an hour as people just kind of got going. So um, lucky for me as as the person typing it all out. So, you, so Damien, you frame the story around, uh, the, you know, the company that shall not be named. Of course, we're talking about Biogen because <laughs> we're always talking about Biogen. But, you know, you talk about it, uh, you know, this is kind of one of his, I don't want to say it's his final challenge, but it's one of his final challenges, which is to say, figuring out, uh, you know, what Biogen's next chapter uh, will be talk to us a little bit about that and kind of what you heard about his role in in you know in kind of helping Biogen get out of the current uh, situation it finds itself in. Yeah, it was interesting talking to so many people who are such admirers of him because they you know everyone's realistic about the state at which Biogen finds itself currently. The stock price, by any measure, things have not gone well. The stock price, obviously, um, the Adjuhelm debacle, which we've talked about at length, the base business, which has been on a gradual decline, and, and Biogen's efforts to change the narrative, to bring in new ideas, to replenish the pipeline, all of the above, have they've come in fits and starts. They've either been failures or they're works in progress that don't get a lot of respect, at least on Wall Street. So that just kind of is what it is. With Papadopoulos as chairman in his 74th year of life at a company that expects its board members to submit their resignations at age 75, this is, if not a final challenge, it does feel like a last big challenge in, in this storied career. And when you consider all of the issues facing Biogen, a lot of people phrase it in a way where it's almost like the final boss of a career for a guy who's been on every side of the table in biotech is that figuring out how to right the ship for this company will draw on all of the experience that he's had 
to date, foremost with choosing a new CEO. But, you know, as we've talked about before, the board of Biogen, over which he presides, but not necessarily rules with an iron fist, has been fractured for more than a decade now. Um, there have been times of, I guess, cooperation between board members and times of strife. And so really the challenge facing him now is coalescing that group to actually move in the same direction. I mean, Stan Crook, who I mentioned, the founder of Isis Pharmaceuticals, now Ionis Pharmaceuticals, said that he he thinks if you were to pin Stelios down, which obviously I was unable to do, um, and really get him to be honest, he would say that not being able to get that board on the same page has been one of the major disappointments of his career. Yeah. Talking about this really complex, I mean, to put it mildly, <laughs> relationship um, among the Biogen board members, what do you gather is like Papadopoulos's like role specifically? Like what, where is he in all of that? And, um, you know, how did he, as a board member, like how did the board get to this point where it is? Um, you know, you kind of allude to some of the past and actually uh, talk directly to some of the past board struggles and, and potential board take takeovers and how that have kind of led to where Biogen is today. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people I spoke to kind of point back to the kind of like thunderclap of the last generation of Biogen, which came when Carl Icahn, the famed activist investor or corporate raider, depending on uh, how you look at his career, took an interest in the company around 2008 and basically said they're, they've become unfriendly to shareholders, they're throwing good money after bad, just everything is going to rot. And he took up an activist position in the company and agitated for a change to its board. So that turned into a big public fight. And basically, Papadopoulos emerged as a friendly face to kind of ameliorate that problem. The uh, Biogen's board at the time nominated him as a director, which a lot of people described to me as kind of throwing a bone, perhaps, to investors. Here was this known quantity from Wall Street, this uh, very recently retired famed investment banker who everyone knew, but who also had the sort of scientific bona fides such that a company like Biogen you know, wouldn't view him as some kind of, I don't know, just empty suit MBA coming in to tell them how to do their business. The issue is that didn't really ameliorate the sort of activist concern. So uh, an acolyte of of Carl Icahn, Alex Denner, also joined the board, I think, a year later. And so there was this kind of push and pull of should Biogen be a company that's spending money to try to become the next Merck? Or should Biogen be a company that's very good at one thing and should be austere and focused such that it might be purchased by a company like Merck? And I think the issue, I mean, this is oversimplifying, and it's been about 15 years, is that Biogen never totally committed to either strategy. There, are, There's a faction on the board that pushes for that kind of austerity that might lead to a stale. And there is a faction on the board that maybe pushes for the more expansive thinking that would lead to perhaps becoming the next Merck. That's also oversimplifying it. But the way it was put to me is that, you know, Papadopoulos is very much more on the expansive side, but that just the issues that that board has had, even through a few permutations, have made it to where that strife has led to stasis. And that kind of brings us to Biogen now where, you know, as I've said before, even the most sympathetic observers would say it has not gone well. So I want to mention uh, another detail of the story, which I really loved uh, as someone who has spent 20 years covering biotech. Um, and that's the collection, the archive of IPO prospectuses that uh, that Stelios <laughs> apparently has in uh, the basement of his Long Island mansion, Damien. Um, this is an incredible trove 
of uh, of history, you know, data history of the biotech world. It is, yeah. I mean, it's it's it seems simple that just a record of how many companies have gone public in biotech would be something that would have been reduced to practice by digital whatever by now, but it's not. The actual SEC website only goes as far back as I believe 1995. And everything before that would have to be hand collated. And who else but Stelios would commit to that task? So as you mentioned, he has every prospectus. And these are, for people not familiar, this is like a ream of paper for every company that goes public. They have to tell you everything about them, everything that might befall them. It's endless and it's legalistic. He has all of them. I don't know what the total number is. I assume it's in excess of a thousand, just based on how many public oh, companies it's there be. are. Yeah, it's, it's got to be huge. And what kind of amazed me is he is apparently committed to digitizing these records by hand, coding for you know obviously the company when it went public, how much money it raised, but also who were the executives, what was the lead indication, what became of that drug, were they acquired, et cetera, et cetera. And from the sound of it, he's he's kind of trying to like export his institutional knowledge, which is a huge part of his influence, the fact that he's just been around for everything, onto a website that presumably would be freely accessible. And so it's not so much maybe his acknowledging his own mortality per se, but you know, he is getting older. And so it did seem to me, as that project was described to me, that he's almost kind of trying to ensure his own immortality, in a sense, because the you know, this human embodiment of the institutional knowledge of biotech would be freely accessible to any of us who could go to this website once he's done with this project, whenever that is. Wow. That's that's quite a collection. I'm sure that his wife hates that the basement is filled it's with like, It's like most people. It's like, it's like when you go and you ask Delius to, to see his man cave, he takes you down there and it's like just... <laughs> it's, it's bookcases <laughs> lined with SEC filings. <laughs> it's certainly one kind of man cave. Um, well, you can hear more about that and and all of the other rich material that that Damien put in this this profile um, at statnews.com and you everyone should go read it it's a great read yes go read the story it was great That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode and what you didn't like and who Damien should profile next. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. While you're on that platform, make sure to check out the First Opinion podcast, which returns on September 7th. See you next week.